fits. I found uh, there's a, a New York Times best-selling uh, novel at the moment called Counterfeit, and it's about uh, a woman who sells counterfeit designer handbags. Found all kinds of stories about counterfeit money, counterfeit jewelry, counterfeit Pokemon cards, counterfeit Hydro Flask, counterfeit jerseys. I may or may not have four or five Bengals counterfeit jerseys in my house. And of course, lots of counterfeit bourbon. And this shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, according to a recent Wall Street Journal investigation, Amazon has listed thousands of banned, unsafe, or mislabeled products. And what makes this possible is the third-party sellers on Amazon. The majority of the sales on Amazon are not from Amazon itself, but from these third-party sellers. So now, lots of people are selling fake stuff on Amazon. It's a real problem. It's such a problem that Birkenstock won't sell anything on Amazon. Nike won't sell anything on Amazon. So anything that you see of Birkenstock or Nike on Amazon has to be fake. And now Amazon's doing something about it. They're taking legal action against these counterfeiters. They've committed to spend $400 million in 2024 to hire personnel who are going to build tools that use data science to detect potential fakes in an effort to protect customers from fraud. And then I came across a movie, Queen Pens. Has anybody ever seen it? Kristen Bell? In 2012, huge hit, apparently. <laughs> and in the movie, it involves these three women that are real life. Robin Ramirez, Mary Johnson, and Miko Fountain. They're called the Coupon Queens. They live in Phoenix, and they sold bogus coupons from 2007 to 2012. You guys remember those days? The CVS, I mean, they give you long receipts now. Well, if you bought anything 2007 to 2012, I mean, they were like from here to the floor long. Coupons were all the rage, and so these women knew this, and so they sold these coupon books with $70 worth of free items for the low, low price of $10. They sold them on eBay. They sold them on SavvyShopperSite.com. Eventually, the Phoenix Police Department, they smelled something fishy because of the luxurious lifestyle that these three women were leading. It was like, they said it was like a drug cartel type level of luxury. Each of these three women had multiple homes. Between them, they had 22 high-powered guns. They had, 40, they had a 40-foot speedboat that they shared, and they had 21 cars collectively. Kind of a giveaway, you know? There's also some giveaways when it comes to finding a phony product. All you got to do is a little inspection. For instance, Buffalo Trace is now testing these conf this confiscated bourbon to see if it's theirs or not. Usually when you come across a, a, a counterfeit jersey or handbag, you can handle it for a moment and you can tell it's less, that it has less quality, that it's probably not authentic. It just has a logo on it. Or you could know something's phony. For instance, with these uh, coupon ladies, they have this weird website, Savvy, SavvyCoupon.com, and, and, it's, and, and it requires you to spend $50 per order. You can only do so when you have a referral and you have to have a certain prepaid debit card, and then you have to check a box saying that you will not share information about this site with people you don't actually know, including forums and any public viewing areas or websites. Kind of a giveaway. Just a little inspection is all it takes 
to catch most counterfeits. And the same is true with our faith. James, in his epistles, is trying to get us to do some self-inspection, and he wants us to see if our faith is genuine. So he's asking us to put the microscope on our lives to see if our confession of faith is indicative of authentic faith. And let me just say from the outset that if you're familiar with the Bible, if you've read a lot of Paul's letters, particularly Romans and Galatians, you might think that James is saying something contradictory to Paul, but he's not. And I'm going to show you why. All these seeming contradictions come from their context. You've got to think about who James is talking to. You've got to think about who Paul is talking to. And who James is talking to is that James is talking to people who know their Bibles. They know that Jesus' life and his teaching, his death and his resurrection are all built on things you can find in the Old Testament. The people James is talking to assume that their biblical heritage and their biblical knowledge guarantees God's favor. And so what James is trying to do is undermine their confidence in an orthodox confession. But Paul, on the other hand, he's writing to a totally different group of people. He's writing to people who don't know what the Old Testament is. They don't know the difference between Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And Paul's trying to enter in with them at a different place. He's trying to enter in with them at the human experience of guilt and shame and show them that the gospel of God's free grace can free them from their unrelenting burdens. So in short, James is trying to afflict the comfortable and Paul is trying to comfort the afflicted. And we all need both messages at some point in our lives. So maybe today is the day that will wake us up from our delusion that having faith, having biblical knowledge, having an orthodox confession is equivalent to having saving faith. So let's read James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. But some woman will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you, not, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The word of the Lord. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says very clearly what James's theme is. It says, faith without works cannot save. See, what James is saying, he, he's, he's saying that, that he, what he's not saying is that works must be added to faith. Rather, his point is that genuine faith will inevitably be characterized by works. He's saying that works are not an added, added extra to our faith. Rather, 
Our good works are an essential expression of our faith. So trying to add works to a bogus faith, it's a fool's errand. One must first accept the gospel, put faith in the gospel, or as James said in chapter 1, verse 18, the implanted word. When that's accepted, when that implanted word is received, it leads to an inner transformation that then produces the works that are pleasing to God. That's what James is trying to say throughout this passage, and he states that theme in verse 14. So how can we be sure that our faith is a saving faith? What do we need to be looked for when we inspect it? Well, he gives us four characteristics in our passage. And the first one, first one is in verses 15 to 17. In verses 15 to 17, he's trying to say that faith is more than sentimental compassion. See this, he, what, he, what he gives here is a person who's in need of clothes and food and this professing Christian, this imaginary professing Christian encounters this person with these needs. And this professing Christian, you've got to admire some things about him, right? I mean, they didn't ignore the person who needed clothes and food. But this imaginary professing Christian talks to them. Check. No one does, do they talk to them, but it gives them a good word. It gives them the word, go in peace. Well, this phrase, go in peace, that's a, a biblical greeting. It's used throughout the whole, old, the whole Bible, the Old and the New Testament. So check. But when you look at closely exactly what they say, the blessing is actually a cover for a failure to act, isn't it? In fact, the words be warmed and filled that you see there actually mean this, warm and feed yourself. Actually means I wish you well as you take care, of your take care of yourself. You look cold, you ought to get warm. You look skinny, you should eat more. Another way of putting this is may God feed and clothe you because I certainly won't. They're just trite words. This is nothing but sentimentality. But faith working through deeds would be moved to do more than give a well wish. Real faith meets the needs of this real poor person instead of only using religious jargon. This week I ran across the obituary for an Indian man named Bindeshwar Pathak. He died at the age of 80 in India, and he was born into the highest middle-class caste. So Bindeshwar had some privilege. When he was seven years old, a, a woman would come by the back door of his home and try to sell his family bamboo utensils. And every time when she would come by and she would leave, his grandmother would sprinkle some holy water wherever this woman had been because this woman was thought to have polluted the area in which they, she had been at the family home. So one day, Benishwar being a curious seven-year-old, he dared to touch this woman's clothes to see what might happen to his body. And of course, nothing happened. But an uproar broke out. He was going to be banished for his deed, but his mother intervened with the authorities. And what the mother and the authorities settled on was that he would clean himself by drinking a mixture of milk, ghee, curd, cow urine, and cow dung to purify himself. What Benjeshwar, what he learned is that these women were of the lowest class. They were the untouchables and the only way that 
they were able to make a living was by selling things like bamboo utensils, but most of them made most of their money by cleaning out human waste from buckets and dry pit toilets. They would do so using a metal brush and they would use their bare hands. Well, in 1950, this term untouchable, it was banned in India, but the work that the untouchables did was still needed to be done. And Benjamin was so gripped by the, end, but by the incident of his childhood that he made his life mission to bring these women relief. He knew that if he could find proper flush toilets that clean themselves, then the cleaners of the traditional toilet would be out of work and they could find more dignified jobs. And India would be a, a healthier, a, a cleaner, and a more equal place. And so what Bindeshwar did is that he designed this toilet in 1969. In 1973, he sold his first two units. He sold them to a municipality. And 47 years later, there were 110 million of these toilets across India. See, I have no idea if Bindeshwar was a Christian. That's not the point. The point is to see how his concern for the poor was proven by his deeds on their behalf. Brother and sister, see, real faith, genuine faith is more than mere sentimentality. The second thing we see is in verses 18 to 20, and we see that faith is more than doctrinal orthodoxy. See, again, James imagines a, a professing Christian who wants to get into a debate with him. Maybe not a debate, but at least a conversation. And this imaginary professing Christian knows their Bible and readily calls himself a Christian, but they're having a really hard time with James' emphasis on works. And so he raises this question that we see in verse 18 that says, how about, essentially, how about James, how about you do the works and I'll have the faith and then we've got all our bases covered. I mean, it's a pretty good deal, right? I mean, it's a good negotiator, this brother, this sister, who knows? But James objects. James says that's not how it works. What, how this thing works is that you put faith and good deeds alongside one another, that they're not special gifts that a Christian may or may not have. You've got to have both. And because this person is especially keen on knowing Orthodox Christian doctrine, James wants to, provoke, he wants to provoke this person. He wants to expose them. So he throws in a real zinger in verse 19. Do you see it? In verse 19, he says, you know the demons believe that God is one, right? I mean, this was the most core Jewish belief that the Lord God is one. That's the Shema. That's Deuteronomy 6. So demons have some good theology here. I mean, there's never been a demon who's been an atheist, ever. Every demon ever has been a Trinitarian. Every demon ever has believed that the Bible is God's word. See, demons are great theologians. They're better than most of us, but it doesn't do them any good because their orthodox beliefs are not equivalent to genuine faith. So you see these first two things, right? This first thing about sentimentality, that faith is more than just saying nice things. You see in that next example in verses 18 through 20 that faith is more than just thinking the right things. See, according to verse 20, what we find out is that it's useless to hold a faith that's merely cognitive. What we found out in that first example is that it, it, what we need is more than just someone who will talk. 
Because we're more than talkers and thinkers, that we're doers. We've been given a will by God to do things. And to think about faith this way makes me tremble. It made me think of how we define Christianity. Even in 2023 in the American South, essentially as subscribing to a few tenets of theology like Jesus is God, the Bible's important, and then we'd be nice, and that means we're a Christian. That's a really low bar. It's what I would call cultural Christianity, and it's the same kind of thing that James is troubled by in his day. So if you see these deficiencies in this view of faith, you need some positive examples. And that's what James gives us in the second half of this passage. These two examples, the first is Abraham and the second is Rahab. You guys know about Abraham. I mean, he was a G, right? I mean, he came to faith in Genesis chapter 12. We read about it all last spring from Genesis 12 through 22. We see that James demonstrates that faith again and again, and it's difficult for him to obey what God tells him again and again. And then the high point of his obedience is in chapter 22. And this is the incident that James refers to. And that's the incident where Abraham offers his one and only son Isaac on the altar because he was told so. And this event happens 30 years after he was promised a son, and it's proof that Abraham's faith was genuine. See, James' example of Abraham's, it's, in the teaching around it, it's giving us a helpful schema, I think, for how faith works. And I've never done this. We're eight years into this church, and I'm going to show a slide. So I wanted you to see this today, because I found this to be so helpful. All right, so Abraham, uh, he gives, we, with this his example, and again, the teaching around it, we've got this schema, these four things. The first view says that if we do enough good works, that they'll produce salvation by earning God's favor. The second one says that if we believe and perform good works, then we obtain salvation. The third one says that faith results in salvation. The fourth one says that faith leads to salvation and then the works follow. Let's go through each one. The first one, no Christian adheres to view one. None. View two. View two is subscribed to by anxious and angry Christians. View three is supported by lazy Christians that just accept Jesus as Savior, but they don't want anything to do with him as Lord. But then what you see in the fourth view is what the New Testament testifies to throughout. And it says that we're saved by faith alone, but real faith is never alone. See, Jesus says as much in Matthew 7 and Matthew 25 and John 15. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 3.13, Galatians 6.4, Ephesians 2.10, Galatians 5.6, Romans 1.5. John the Baptist says the same thing in Luke chapter 3. And this is what's true for Abraham. His faith led not only to his salvation, but also to good works. So you got to get the order right because God wants you not to display anger and insecurity and pride in your life. He wants you to display love and joy and peace. And that only happens when the pieces of this equation fall in place, not just in your head, but also in your heart. Because at the end of the day, you, like Abraham, are God's friend. And as God's friend, God wants good things for you. The first example, Abraham. Look at the second one, Rahab. 
And as you think about Rahab, think about Abraham for one more moment. I mean, here's Abraham. He's regarded by many ancient Jews and James's audience and even contemporary Jews today as the most righteous man who has ever lived. So by bringing in Rahab, James knocks these people off their spot, the readers off their spot, and he puts forth the exact opposite kind of person in Rahab. I mean, here, Abraham's not just an Israelite. He's the father of Israel, whereas Rahab is a Canaanite. You have Abraham as a man and Rahab as a woman. You have Abraham as a wealthy patriarch who's a real estate mogul next to Rahab, whose profession is as a prostitute. Yet Rahab illustrates the same kind of genuine faith that Abraham does. Remember what she did. She took in these Israelite spies and they were needy and helpless and she cared for them and she cared for them at great risk to herself. She did all of it because she believed in God. She had faith and she acted on God's behalf. Her deeds showed that her faith was alive. So in summary, faith is more than saying nice things. Faith is more than thinking right doctrinal things. Faith involves difficult obedience like we see with Abraham offering Isaac up as a sacrifice. We see that faith is offering costly care to others with Rahab. So clearly our salvation involves both faith and works in the same way that our bodies involve or that our lives involve both body and spirit. That's why you see what you do in verse 26. In verse 26, it says that having a spirit and not a body is useless. Having a body and not a spirit is useless. But it's only in putting them together that you have real life. And so when James is talking about faith, he's talking about the spiritual component of life. He's talking about the spirit. And by mentioning the body, he means the behavioral or physical part of life. What James is trying to say that there are things that are felt and thought with our mind and our spirit, then there are things that we do with our hands and our feet. And all of those things only become effective when we bring them together in a unified way. Doesn't that sound like Jesus to you? I mean, Jesus was the physical. I mean, he, along with the Father and Spirit, created the physical world. He came in a physical body because he wanted to be a person that you could hear with your ears, see with your eyes, and touch with your hands. He was born of a woman. He grew as a male through adolescence. He ate. He slept. He healed people of their physical maladies. He didn't tell people to feed and clothe themselves. He fed and clothed them himself. He had a body that had to die on a Roman cross. He had a body that was resurrected and that would come again. And he's going to come again in a body. And see, the good news of Jesus, it's more than a message to be, to be believed, but it's a person to be encountered. So Jesus was physical. Jesus was, is also spiritual. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit. He forgave sin, not just healed people of their disease. He taught on the spirit spiritual realities of the kingdom. He believed right things about his father and those beliefs didn't make him shudder like it did the demons. Rather, those beliefs caused him great joy and delight. 
So when you see this Jesus, when you see that Jesus did more than just say nice things to you, when you see that Jesus did more than just believe the right things, when you see that Jesus actually did something on your behalf, that he didn't just say, I love you, he demonstrated his love for you by dying on a cross and rising again, then that's when your faith will become potent. Your faith is going to be infused with all kinds of energy that begins to ask what needs to be done. You begin to see that your faith doesn't wait around to be told to do things. It looks for good works that need doing. But let me be clear. This whole idea of good works, this isn't a call to perfection. I mean, if you were with us all of last spring, what you'll find out is that when we talked about Abraham all last spring, what you'll find out is that man, his, his, his faith was not up and to the right. His faith was cyclical. He'd had good days and he had bad days. He had, no matter how old and mature he got, he still struggled. He had days where he didn't do the good he knew he should do. He had days where he did the bad that he knew he shouldn't do. And brother and sister, so will you and so will I. So what do you do when you have bad days, when the Bible calls you to good works? What do you do when you screw up and struggle? Here's what you do. You don't let your first thought be, I must have counterfeit faith. Your first thought is, I've got to repent before the Lord. Your first thought is you go to him and you ask him to increase your desire for obedience. That's what you do when you have bad days. And when you have good days, when you realize that your obedience, you've got to realize that your obedience is fueled by power that is not innate to you. You've got to realize that the only reason you could even half-heartedly execute anything considered to be obedience, anything considered to be a good work, you've got to realize it's all grace. See, brother and sister, this is the life of genuine faith. And my prayer is that we as a church, that we would display this kind of faith in our lives by God's grace. Let's pray.